on the panel. Oh, NZ National, good to have you here. A Thursday afternoon, Ali Moore and Scott Campbell with me today. Uh, a lot of phrase fillers coming through. Here's one. We talk about this very soon. My husband drives me nuts by regularly saying, let me put it this way. Or what other way were you going to put it? First up, New Zealand is officially in recession as GDP falls for a second quarter. Stats NZ figures showed gross domestic product fell 0.1% in line with expectations, taking annual growth to 2.2%. This is the second consecutive quarter of negative growth following the previous quarter's 0.6% contraction, meeting the technical definition of a recession. Meanwhile, in its annual health check on on uh, New Zealand, the IMF praised New Zealand's exemplary handling of the pandemic, but said the government's generous financial and monetary support had overheated the economy and it was now going through a necessary slowdown uh, caused by the RBNZ's rate rises to combat inflation. We might touch on that. We touched on it yesterday as well. With us is Brad Olson, Senior Economist at Infometrics. Kia ora, Brad. Kia ora. Very good. I understand you're at a field day. I am. I'm having a field day at field days, uh, which, you know, coming at a time when we're talking about how the economy is going, is interesting to compare, uh, like you say, the recession that was announced today. That's the first uh, non-lockdown recession that New Zealand has experienced since 2010. Again, you sort of take out those periods uh, during COVID. But I think as well, it's interesting, um, given that uh, our exports were knocked by the likes of the cyclone, that certainly didn't help the GDP numbers. But really one of the major components or one of the major drivers uh, is that we saw lower spending over the last year. Um, you made the point around the IMF's report in your introduction and, and I think that's important because if if we were overheating the economy and it's quite clear we were, uh, you don't just keep doing it. You don't just keep sort of boiling the pot until it runs dry. You eventually turn it down touch. The Reserve Bank told us they were trying to get us into a recession to cool the jets. Uh, that's what we've found ourselves in at the moment. So really this, this is, has been engineered. It is expected to bring back down those inflationary pressures and so far um, all things seem to be on track, albeit an unusual track. We don't normally try to aim for a session, we try to aim away from it. Right. Um, cyclones, hail and Gabriel, so they contributed as you said, but also interestingly strikes by teachers all a drag on economic activity. Yes, a few more um, unusual, certainly not common uh, elements in the economic numbers this time round. Um, we've seen particularly forestry exports uh, that pulled back because of uh, cyclone uh, pressures and if I look through my numbers we can see uh, that export log volumes fell 14% from the December quarter, uh, wood and paper exports down 12%. We know that there will be further uh, hits in the next quarter as well um, as part of our horticultural exports don't make it to market because uh, apple trees, kiwifruit trees and similar uh, have been damaged. Uh, but you're right as well, that strike action of course um, economic activity is when we're doing that work and so uh, when teachers weren't on the job and, and, and teaching uh, New Zealand's young people, uh, that didn't count for work. Uh, of course, in, into the future as well, there's uh, further challenges that are ca- going to come down uh, in terms of you know, households are having to face various pressures that are coming forward. Businesses are facing higher costs as well. So um, there is, I guess, a smorgasbord of, of challenges and yeah. various ups and downs in the numbers. All right. So we're in a recession, Ellie Moore. Feel like a recession to you? Yeah. Kia ora. I've got a, a question for Brad, if I may. Mm. Um, Brad, the cyclone recovery, you know, the rebuilding after the cyclone is um, uh, supposed to to help here. Does the speed of the cyclone rebuild uh, make a difference? Would it make a difference? Because I know 
Where I live, there's uh, on Auckland's gorgeous West Coast beaches, there's considerable concern about the pace of, um, you know, uh, just information flowing to people who, who are out of their houses and want to rebuild but can't because of various um, decisions haven't been made by, you know, the, the powers that be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're completely right that we do expect that over time as rebuilds across uh, parts of the North Island that were hit get going, that should add uh, to GDP. It, it's not sort of economic growth you'd want to have. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of the broken window fallacy uh, coming forward again. Uh, but you're right that over time it will add to economic activity. The question is how quickly that comes through. Um, you're not the only person that's highlighted uh, the, the challenge around timeframes and similar. Um, I was up in Hawke's Bay a few weekends back and uh, concerns around the, the pace of, uh, you know, getting the horticulture sector, for example, um, back on its, on its feet. So, um, Certainly uh, an expectation that it will add to GDP at some point in the future, but not quite as quickly. Um, of course, coming at a, at a time when there will be some permanent reductions expected in GDP uh, and further economic activity, you know, uh, we haven't got as many apple trees that are uh, left and similar. And until they get back uh, to, to, to being grown and, and they'll take some time to get there, um, that's a further hit on, on the production and similar. So uh, very much a, a bit of a waiting game in some areas uh, for how quickly that economic activity will be recorded in the numbers. Yeah, Scott. Yeah, just just on that point, Brad, and, you know, we've talked ourselves almost into this recession. Can we talk ourselves out of it? And, and I guess these numbers look back, you know, some months now. So mm. um, what, what, is, what is this recession and, and why is today's announcement so important to the layperson who doesn't really um, understand the economic side of it? Look, that's a great question. I think, you know, we get hung up a lot on, on recession and, and, you know, we think of it as, as the big economic bogeyman. And to be fair, sometimes it is. And it's certainly, you know, you generally, if you can, want the economy uh, to be expanding. Um, I, I think in terms of, yes, you're right, we've talked ourselves into a recession, but also we have had some pretty big hits. Those higher interest rates that are coming forward, for example, are very much hitting households. For example, uh, durable spending uh, by households down 11% from a year ago. That's the largest fall since the 90s, excluding lockdowns. Uh, the 6% annual fall uh, in non-durable spending, also the largest on record going back to 1988 once you take out lockdown effects. So, um, you know, there are some very real hits here, but again, we're, we're coming off a high base. I think into the future, um, the, the question that comes through is that there are various other trends that will be contributing uh, to economic activity. We've got more people coming into the country. Those more people coming in have to uh, be buying goods to keep themselves alive and similar. All of that is expected to add to economic activity. Um, I think what we're likely to see, though, is effectively an economy that looks like it's sitting on its hands uh, for the next uh, six to nine months, maybe into uh, 2024. Uh, because remember as well that the contraction in economic activity today was, was down 0.1%. Actually, when you take it down a bit further, it was down 0.06%. That's not a huge fall. And, and I think importantly, the New Zealand economy is still about a percentage point larger or so than no. where it was at the start of 2022. So um, yes, we've taken a little bit of cream off the top, but there is still a lot happening in the economy. Um, and I think really we're just sort of um, sitting on our hands for the next wee while until we can get into a more sustainable economic position. Okay. Now, I know you, you, I want you to get back to your feed field day very, very soon, Brad. Can I just raise this though, the uh, internet National Monetary Fund. So um, they have this annual health check uh, and praised New Zealand's uh, handling of the pandemic. But it said, look, uh, there are a couple of things that need to happen. And that is longer term, we need to look 
and address our tax system. A well-designed tax reform could allow for lower corporate and personal income tax by rates by broadening the tax base. Uh, and that might mean the, such like the likes of a land tax or a comprehensive capital gains tax. Do you want to comment on that, Brad? Oh, I think it's the sort of conversation that New Zealand seems to be sort of uh, going round and round the mulberry bush on for a yeah. while. I mean, there's a lot of conversations about tax at the moment. Um, I think that, you know, the focus from the IMF there is very much being that, look, we can we can switch where we're getting our taxes from. That can mean that actually households and businesses might not have to pay as much in uh, if you can get the same amount of pie by cutting it up uh, in a different way and having that wider focus. I think as well, though, um, the IMF also highlighted that New Zealand hasn't really addressed our housing affordability issues either, uh, you know, yes, um, house prices have come down, but mortgages are a lot more expensive. What the IMF report said to me uh, really was that there were a lot of longer term issues that we had to press pause on during the pandemic. We did incredibly well through the pandemic, but now at the other side, those bigger longer term issues have come back to the front uh, of mind. We need to address them. We need to stop kicking the can down the road. Uh, whether or not we'll have mm. the political conviction to do so, um, you know, maybe we'll see later this year, given it is an election year. Uh, clearly an issue that won't go away soon. For now, Brad Kiora, thank you for your time. That's Brad Olson there uh, from Infometrics. Now, meanwhile, just uh, jumping very briefly into this, uh, Ali Moore's I've Been Thinking has had a bit of response here. It's quite interesting, actually, uh, the fact that you you can you can only mention something. Next minute, your social uh, media is full of that product. Get this. Lindsay and Fakatani says, Wallace, I organise a lot of props for our local community theatre. Advert feeds when I start planning a new show can be interesting. If I'm searching for a milking stall, hangman's noose, or a builder's apron, the ads will follow within five minutes and go on for months. How about that, Ali? Yeah, I I also find when you've, which is kind of counterintuitive, when you've when you buy something and you've bought it and it's been delivered, you keep getting delivered ads for the same thing for months afterwards. And that makes no sense to me at all because I've already bought that thing. It's very, so very I don't odd. need it anymore. Huh. Yeah. 18 pass for the panel. Now, a recent review of New Zealand's 18 prisons over a 12-month period showed thousands of inmates had experienced solitary confinement. A report from the Independent Office of the Inspectorate shows that between the 1st of October 2020 and September 20, 2021, thousands of at-risk prisoners had spent months or even years without contact without from any other prisoners and are now susceptible to long-lasting psychological effects like depression and paranoia. Nearly 30% of all prisoners held at that time uh, spent time in jail where they were segregated from social interactions. With us is Dr. Alice Mills, Associate Professor in Criminology at the University of Auckland. Dr. Mills, welcome. Hello. Hello, Wallace. It was uh, pretty eye-raising the amount of time that a prisoner, and there are many of them, can be put in solitary confinement. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it's also pretty shocking that that figure of 29% as well, having experienced a, a period separated from the prison population and being unable to mix with others. Yeah. For those who are not familiar, which would be many of us, just what is solitary confinement? 
Well, solitary confinement is defined by the uh, UN Nelson Mandela rules as basically spending 22 hours or more a day without any meaningful human interaction. Um, so usually what that is is it's being locked up um, on a separate unit um, for a whole variety of reasons and there are many reasons for um, solitary confinement or segregation um, but without any uh, meaningful human interaction so not just transactional stuff whereby somebody is giving you food for example um, it has to be meaningful um, interaction with other people um, if, if, that, if that confinement lasts for longer than 15 days, then it's, uh, according to the Nelson Mandela rules, then it, it's seen as, uh, 15 days or longer, sorry, then it's seen as um, prolonged solitary confinement, and that is prohibited by the UN. And yet we're having here, according to the report, prisons been locked up far longer than 15 days. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the report mentions that some people are, are locked up um, in this way for months, and in some cases even years, yeah. All right, let's go around the panel on this. Ellie Moore. It's terrifying. Absolutely. I'm a bit of a hermit, um, I admit, but I find that terrifying. Um, I'd like to ask Dr Mills, actually, uh, did I read somewhere that in a lot of cases the the prisoners also did not have um, anything to occupy themselves during those periods locked up? You know, I don't know whether that be reading material or um, other means to keep their brains occupied. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, so um, I mean, what the report points out is that in most cases they may have access to a radio or um, television, but that is about it. And they usually also get an hour's worth of uh, a time out of cell, usually in the form of exercise in the yard. But some cases they're required to take a shower or alternatively call their families during that time. So that kind of eats into their exercise time. Um, in some cases, um, depending on the reasons why they've been kind of segregated, they may be able to get access to some reading materials um, or um, other kind of activity booklets or um, colouring um, activities or things like that. But generally, yes, absolutely, they have nothing to do other than watch TV. Scott? Um, Dr Mills, uh, there will be some people, I assume, who will say, well, that's their fault for being in prison. But what I'm, what I'm hearing and what I'm reading uh, from this report is that um, are we going above and beyond, I guess, of what would normally be expected? Is there Are there contributing factors to this? Do we not have enough rooms or space for people to be able to not be in, in the segregation? Um, I think that's a, that's a good question. I think much of this potentially comes down to staffing, um, and we know that corrections are short-staffed at this stage. Um, but, uh, and we also we also know though that that the use of um, solitary confinement or segregation, uh, particularly for mental health reasons, has gone up quite substantially about the last ten years as well. Um, and that was going on before we hit the kind of staffing crisis that corrections has at the moment. Yeah. Now, solitary confinement, though, Dr. Mills, it is a legitimate tool, is it not? I mean, if it's used as a behavioural tool, albeit a device of last resort. Is there not a place for it? Um, it's interesting because that is what it says in the report, the notion of solitary yeah. confinement as a legitimate tool. The other thing to bear in mind is that corrections generally doesn't talk in terms of solitary confinement per se. It will talk about segregation and there are a variety of different reasons of sort of how white uses segregation. But they tend not to, to focus on this term solitary confinement um, probably because, you know, there is general kind of outrage whenever that is mentioned, I think it's fair to say. Um, but, uh, yeah, it is... Uh, yeah. It's, 
I think the, the thing is, is that there's not really been a lot of thought about what else could be done with people who have, uh, who, who need to be protected in some cases, you know, need to be in solitary in segregation for their own protection, or alternatively, um, there are kind of behaviour issues. One of the things that the report points out is it not only talks about those who are uh, being placed in segregation or solitary confinement because of disciplinary issues or, or to maintain the uh, security and good order of the prison, but also those who are uh, at risk of self-harm. And they also frequently are locked in a cell with very little meaningful human interaction, if any, um, and also uh, generally don't have much to occupy themselves instead. And there are other ways of treating, of, of helping people and preventing um, self-harm. Right. Just on that link, I mean, I guess it's what, what's, what's really um, got the panellists, got myself is just the sheer length. I mean, one, as Ellie Moore says, I mean, it's, you know, you you might like your own company, but uh, it's pretty frightening to think that you could be locked up months or even years uh, in this type of scenario. Do you know what the attitude of the prisoners are to solitary confinement? Um, well, I, I, I'm not, I, I couldn't say with any certainty. I think you would generally have to ask, that, uh, yeah. the, uh, ask them. But the general notion is it's not seen as in any way therapeutic. It's very unlikely to make somebody change their behaviour. I mean, um, it, it, it's suggested that solitary confinement for kind of disciplinary purposes could be used either to deter somebody from engaging in violent behaviour or alternatively, um, potentially, you know, to give them the opportunity to think about what they've done. And the reality is it doesn't really work that way. We know that it doesn't deter people. And we also know that placing somebody in solitary confinement is likely to lead to those psychological issues that you've mentioned, including, um, and in particular, it often leads people to become more angry, uh, to become kind of more entrenched in their views against other people um, that perhaps they were uh, likely to be a risk to and therefore it's unlikely to change their mm. behaviour. Dr Mills, kia ora. Appreciate your time this afternoon. Yeah. That's yeah. Uh, the Associate Professor in Criminology at uh, Auckland University and look, you may even have been or experienced uh, solitary confinement yourself if you have. Why don't you get in touch with the panel? Email me thepanel at rnz.co. .nz. We'll love to hear from you. 26 past four, we've got Scott Campbell and Ali Moore uh, this afternoon. And look, there has been a really big response to this. RNZ's Farrah Hancock and Guy Espiner analysed hours of interviews revealing the phrases that Chris Hipkins, Jacinda Ardern and Christopher Luxon uh, used. What phrases are used most often to block an awkward line of questioning? It's called block and bridge. So the politician blocks the question, builds a verbal bridge and then skips across it to the happy place of prepared messages, writes RNZ. Jacinda Ardern's favourite one was to insert, as I say, then went on to what the authors called the passive-aggressive phrase, if I may, Chris Hipkins favoured this. As I've indicated. Or as I've indicated. Um, look, that's not a decision for me. As I've indicated. Um, as I've indicated. As I've indicated. Um, as I've indicated. As I indicated very clearly. And Luxon used and used this classic. I think the reality is we, uh, and the reality is, the reality is this is, yeah, I mean, the reality is gone. You know, the reality is there is a, but the reality is, well, the reality is, uh, and the reality is. So a big response to your most, uh, or the phrase fillers, uh, you find most annoying. Um, interesting piece, uh, Ali Moore. What do you make of this? You've interviewed many politicians in your time. You can relate to these uh, block and bridge techniques. 
Yes, yes, I have um, come up against this many, many times. And to me, we've we've all, time has passed and we've all forgotten the king of filler phrases, which is, of course, at the end of the day. Donkey? Um, yes, indeed. Um, so, you know, the, the block and bridge is used extensively by um, not just politicians, but... Uh, any number of people who are trying to get a point across and are super keen to stick to their speaking notes. Um, but I think some people do it better than others. Um, do you know who I mean by Mick Lynch? No. Mick Lynch is a trade union leader in the UK who became uh, quite famous a couple of years ago. He's the boss of the transport union. And during the train strikes in the UK, um, he became such a celebrity uh, that they eventually had him as a special guest on um, Have I Got News For You. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I've <laughs> yeah. seen so, that clip. Amazing. Yeah, so his, I mean, he also uses the bridge, but he his, his clarity of communication uh, is, is so superlative uh, that he avoids the kind of trap that our politicians who get waffly with it fall into. Um, they, it's not that, uh, that he doesn't do it or that you, they don't do it, but they just do it badly, I think. <laughs> Scott. I think that's a good question is one of those ones. Um, but you know, and, and, and to be fair, to be <laughs> to fair, be fair um, yes, yes. To be fair to those people. Well, actually, I think we all do it. Um, it's just noticeable because they're politicians and we see them on our TVs. We hear them on the radio. Now, when I say to my son, why did you not open your blind this morning? He will say to me, look, Papa, I, I didn't because I didn't remember. Um, or I didn't do this or I didn't do that. Um, we, we often do just naturally bridge away to something. Um, the good thing, I think, in all of this is that we've become far more aware of it as a public and as an audience. And I think that what Guy and, um, uh, and RNZ are, are trying to show here is that this is a legitimate thing. And if you're not aware of it, become aware of it. Um, and people can see through the spin. And I think that particularly after COVID, we've, we're now looking for that authenticity. Um, but yeah, the, that's a good question is the one that really gets me going. Okay, you don't like that's a good question, Ali Moore. Here's a couple more. Matthew says, I hate going forward. Well, that's out of fashion a bit. Um, I reject that. Must be a close second to Prime Minister Ardern's, former Prime Minister Ardern's, if I may. Ali? Yes, uh, that is a well-used one. I, I don't think you'll ever get polit politicians to stop doing this because yeah. they know that in most media appearances they have a matter of minutes or sometimes yeah. even seconds to get their message across. Um, I mean, what I would prefer or advise people to do generally is answer the question. You know, you can keep your answer short and then bridge your way and get back to your talking points. But I think the the you build trust in the first instance. Oh, there's a there's a filler in the first instance. <laughs> uh, you build trust by just answering the question. Yeah, yeah, and, totally. Yeah. And then move on. Yeah. Right. So to your point, we all we all have that filler, don't we? Uh, someone says Winston Peters. What I said was. Uh, so, uh, with all due respect, the phrase "with all due respect," Wallace can still mean you are respectfully disagreeing with the person. Only amongst the vulgar and uneducated does it mean no respect is given. But some people are just too desperate to try and 
at a rhetorical advantage over other people. Hmm. Very good. Uh, you're on the panel, RNZ National. We have uh, Ali Moore and Scott Campbell this afternoon.